With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Radical. Fundamental principles of freedom. Rational self-interest. And individual rights. This is The Yaron Brook Show. Today, uh, we're going to take on the topic of the Fed, markets, if you've got any finance questions, stock market questions, bond market questions, economic questions, state of the world questions. Uh, please, uh, you know, uh, uh, join us. Uh, we're using, uh, as always, we use the uh, Super Chat feature to ask the questions. So if you're on Facebook and you want to ask a question, hop over to YouTube and uh, ask your question. Don't forget, uh, in support of the show, or more importantly, in support of the ideas of the show, uh, please help us get the word out there. Uh, please uh, subscribe. Get your friends to subscribe. Get people who are not your friends to subscribe. Uh, share, like, you know, do the things that social media requires you to do in order to broaden the, um, the influence of, uh, or the, the reach of, uh, of this show. As I've said many, many times, uh, you know, I, there's no way I can do this alone. Right? People are not just accidentally going to discover the show. Some people will. But if we're going to get numbers, if we're going to get real success, you have to help so please do that of course always want to thank those of you who support the show through um, super chat thank you kevin or through your monthly contributions on one of the various platforms you can do it on uh, whether it's uh, patreon subscribe star locals or my preferred platform the iranbookshow.com slash support website uh, where you can uh, where you can make a, a contribution via paypal all right, uh, with that, we're going to jump in uh, to the question of the Federal Reserve in the current crisis, uh, the question of the impact that has on markets, where markets are heading, I think. Um, let me just give the caveat, nothing of what I'm gonna about to say should be construed as investment advice. Nothing I have to say should be construed as, um, as uh, anything but you know, a, a, a broad, broad description and um, 
my interpretation of the events of the day. I'm not making investment recommendations. All right? <laughs> now that we got the SEC off my back, let's, uh, let's talk about this. Uh, I mean, I think everybody knows that since this crisis has begun in, in March, the Federal Reserve has taken what is really, by all accounts, uh, I don't think anybody disagrees with this, unprecedented actions to pump liquidity, to pump money, in other words, into the system. Indeed, the Fed actually started this uh, last year when uh, they created a facility to pump money into the money markets uh, and about $100 billion a day into the money markets. Of course, uh, we talked about that at the time, and I, I had a few shows in which I mentioned that. Uh, that has been dramatically expanded into not billions, into the trillions, uh, into the trillions of dollars. And rem to remind you, a trillion is a thousand billion. A trillion is a thousand billion. Uh, into a multi-trillion dollar program where the Fed is basically providing liquidity to every corner of the market. Again, what that means is that the Fed is buying financial assets. The Fed is buying IOUs in the financial marketplace, putting them on the balance sheet, owning them in a sense, getting interest on them, and by buying them, providing cash, money, electronic cash, to market participants. So they go into the market with money, they buy IOUs, and the money is out there in the market. That's how they are increasing, dramatically increasing, the money supply in the world around us. Now, to fully understand what the Fed is doing and its consequences, why this is wrong, why this is bad, what kind of effect this is going to have long-term, I thought it would be a good opportunity to maybe review the reason why the Fed exists and a little bit of the history, both of pre-Fed and Fed. Now, this is going to be very much an outline form. We're not doing a seminar here on the history of the Federal Reserve. I'm not sure at this point I'm qualified to do a history of the Federal Reserve. But I'll be doing, giving you an outline of where the, Federal came, where the Federal Reserve came from, what it did for the longest time, and how over the last 20 years, 30 years, maybe a little longer, it has gradually but systematically expanded its powers so that today the Federal Reserve has basically unlimited powers within the financial world. Uh, unprecedented, unimagined by the people who founded the Federal Reserve in 1914. So the Fed is actually 106 years old, or will be later, today, later this year. It's founded in 14. And the Federal Reserve was founded with the idea of increasing stability in the market. Before the Federal Reserve, the market was dominated by banks that issued currency. Banks that issued currency on a gold standard, sometimes a gold and silver standard, but primarily a gold standard. The currency would be exchangeable into gold. You could go to the bank, give them a dollar, and they would give you a little bag of gold. And it, that system existed in a variety of different formats in the founding of America until 1914, uh, where banknotes actually were banknotes. They were issued by banks. Money was a phenomena of banks, not 
something that the government issued. The free banking era that, that started after the Civil War and lasted until 1913 was probably the freest era in, uh, for banking and for uh, money in American history. During that period, there was no central bank. There was no Federal Reserve. The Treasury, unfortunately, the government, did interfere, intervene, change the standards, switch from gold to silver to silver to gold, from gold and, and created havoc in financial markets, often causing uh, temporary recessions or even what economists today define as depressions, all because it was tinkering with the standard with what money was. But essentially, this is a period of relative stability, again, in spite of what you learn in history, but imperfect because government couldn't, I guess they couldn't prevent themselves, they couldn't hold back, but for intervening and dabbling and changing and messing around with the standard. In 1907, there was a financial crisis, financial crisis that caused a number of financial institutions to go bankrupt and threatened the entire system. Uh, by the way, banks have always been regulated in the United States. There's never really been a free banking era. Even during the so-called free banking era, there were heavy state and federal regulations of the banking system. One of the regulations, for example, prohibited banks from branching outside of a state border. So banks were very localized. There was no national banking. There was no cross-state banking, which created all kinds of problems that are beyond the scope of all we want to talk about today. But I just want to make clear to you that banking money has never in American history been totally free. Government has always regulated, controlled, and intervened, not to the extent, anywhere near the extent it does today, but it always has to some extent. And 1907 was a major crash. Major financial crisis. J.P. Morgan, the, the CEO of the largest bank at the time, stepped in, organized other bankers with him, and basically organized the bailout, the recovery of the U.S. banking system, of the U.S. economy. Indeed, the damage done from that downturn in 1907 was relatively mild. The economy bounced back fairly quickly. But 1907 is remembered as this harsh financial crisis, recession, that caused people to really panic. And for a while, the fact that J.P. Morgan, a private banker, is the one who stepped in and saved the day, was viewed positively, and, and, and he was considered a hero. But very quickly, that sentiment changed. And soon, J.P. Morgan was viewed as the villain as having too much power, as controlling the money and the banking system too much, as being, if you will, monopolistic, even though there was no basis for any of that. And by 1913, politicians in Washington, you know, uh, uh, supported by certain economists and thinkers and intellectuals, had come to the conclusion that J.P. Morgan had too much power, and indeed private bankers and private banks more broadly, that private enterprise had too much power, and that the government was much too dependent on them. 
that the banking system was far too private, if you will, far too in the hands of profit-seeking individuals. And that this unfairly or inefficiently, inefficiently reduced the influence of central planners and bureaucrats who were smarter than markets and who should be able to control what was happening. So by 1913, J.P. Morgan is dragged in front of Congress, accused of market manipulation, monopolistic habits, all kinds of things. And the government dedicates itself to forming a replacement of private bankers, profit-seeking bankers, an institution that would replace them, a central bank, which many European countries had already had. Now, upon hearing of the idea of a central bank, American bankers immediately responded by wanting to be involved in its creation. They didn't want to sit this out because they were afraid of what the politicians, unencumbered by reality, would actually create. So in a famous meeting at Jekyll Island, politicians, economists, and some of the leading bankers in the United States sat down to design, to design the central banking system of the United States, call it the Federal Reserve. Now, the idea for the Federal Reserve was to create a system that would stabilize, bring stability to financial markets. The fear was that private markets after 1907, the panic, the, 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 the panic of markets, the fear of financial crisis, the fear of a depression, wouldn't it be just easier if you could have a central bank like the Europeans did that bailed banks out, that provided liquidity in times of crisis, that smoothed things out, that did not allow things, would not allow things to get out of control. A benevolent central planner, a benevolent dictator of markets who would control the markets and make sure that we didn't have any speculative bubbles or any irrational behavior. There was a lot of faith in central planning back then, as you can tell from the rise not many years later of communism and socialism all over the world. And in the United States, that faith in central planning was reflected in the creation of the Federal Reserve System. The Federal Reserve System is a government entity. But it, they didn't want to present it as a government entity. There was still, this is still America, in those days anyway. And there was still some fear of a government entity and government power and government control. So they organized it as a semi-public-private partnership, if you will. The Federal Reserve has a number of chapters around the country. Uh, nominally, the Federal Reserve is owned by private banks, by the largest private banks, gives them some control. The members of the board, banks are guaranteed certain membership privileges on the board of directors of this central bank. But at the end, it is clearly, unequivocally, a government entity. Whatever profits the Federal Reserve generates flow to the Treasury Departments. The chairman of the Federal Reserve serves at, is appointed by the Fed, uh, sorry, is appointed by the President of the United States, confirmed by Congress, 
the Fed basically has always done what the politicians have wanted it to do. There is a nominal separation between the Fed and the executive branch, but it's only nominal. It's not clear that the Fed is even constitutional, but it's being deemed constitutional by the Supreme Court. And it has this enormous power of the ability to print money. Indeed, when the Fed was created, it made it impossible for banks to print money. The only money that was allowed from that point on was banknotes printed by the Federal Reserve. And the way the Federal Reserve brought this money into circulation was originally by buying gold. It would buy gold, put gold in the vault, and release the money. And indeed, the Fed backed for a while all the money that it printed, that it released into the economy, with gold reserves on hand. But you know politicians can't stick to that. Because where's the power in that? Right? If all the dollars that you print actually correspond to actual gold, then you can't randomly print money and distribute it to whoever you want. You can't favor some on behalf of others. You're limited, you're constrained by the quantity of gold that exists. So Federal Reserve officials in their 20s started cheating. Basically, instead of just using money to buy gold, they started using money to buy all kinds of other things, bonds, thus increasing the money supply far beyond what gold they had. This ultimately resulted or helped cause the 29 crash, which then the Federal Reserve didn't know exactly how to respond to, but responded in the wrong manners, did not provide enough liquidity to the market. The gold standard restrained what it could do. I'm not going to get into the whole cause of the, of, the, of the Great Depression here. I'd have to study up on that in much more detail. But basically, the Fed was a major cause of what was the busting of a speculative bubble into a recession and then a Great Depression. There would be no Great Depression, if not, for Fed errors and Fed mistakes along the way. So while the Fed Reserve was created in order to create stability in financial markets, within, was it, 16 years of its creation, it was responsible for the creation of the biggest depression the United States and the world had seen in the modern era. So right from the beginning, the Fed was a disaster. Arguably, it caused the bubble in 29, caused the Great Depression in 1933, 30, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, and onwards. In 1934, uh, Roosevelt basically banned possession of gold by individual American citizens. Only the Fed could have gold. The entire gold reserves of the country were held at the Federal Reserve. You could not own gold in the United States from 1933 until, I think, 1971, 72, 71, I think, but maybe it was 72 or 3. But until the early 1970s where Nixon took us off the gold standard. Nominally, it was still true that the Fed could only print money based on how much gold it has, but massive cheating ensued throughout the 1960s. 
during the 40s, 50s, 60s, U.S. citizens could not redeem their paper money for gold at the Federal Reserve, but foreign governments could. And indeed, in the 1960s, the Fed was printing so much money that foreign governments, particularly the French, decided they did not want to hold the dollars. They believed dollars were overvalued. And they started selling dollars to the Federal Reserve in exchange for gold. And what you saw during the 1960s is a massive outflow of gold from the United States to places like France. As a consequence of that, as a consequence of a decoupling between the gold and the currency that was happening during the late 1960s, Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard completely and created a complete and utter fiat currency in the United States in the 1970s. And since then, the Federal Reserve has basically been allowed to print as much money as it deems fit. The way it brings that money into the economy is by buying government bonds historically. That's what it's done historically. Typically, it buys short-term government bonds, and thus controlling the short-term interest rate. And it floods the market with new money by buying these short-term bonds, thus increasing the money supply, which caused, of course, the great inflation of the 1970s, the great stagflation of the late 1970s, and has caused the business cycle since then, since the 70s, since, well, really, since the creation of the Fed. It's called business cycles, where when the Fed clamps down on the money supply, shrinks the money supply, the economy goes into recession. When it expands the money supply, the economy grows, gets inflation, they clamp down on the money supply, we get a recession again. And it just goes on and on. And indeed, researchers have looked, has the Federal Reserve created more stability in the financial sector? Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Since it creation in 1913, that was its purpose, right? And the answer is no. And if you're interested in the history, if you're interested in some of these studies, I'd recommend the, uh, the work of uh, Larry Wright. White. Larry White from George Mason University and George Selgin from, um, I think he's at the Cato Institute now. Uh, They've written about the history of free banking, the history of the gold standard, the history of the Federal Reserve. They've written studies, and uh, you can find through them, you can find many, 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 many other uh, economists who have written extensively on the history and meaning of the Federal Reserve. So remember this before we get to the more modern history of the Fed. Money 
historically has been private. It has been gold. It has been the value one receives for one's production. An objective value. Something that is clearly has a weight, clearly is something, a substance that people desire and people want and people are willing to pay for. That money was issued by private enterprises, private banks. And the private banks would exchange the paper money, the, the money substitute, the, the cash that you have, for gold anytime you wanted to. Because gold was the real money. Gold was the real money. Those days, money meant something. It had a stable value. It had a value determined by private markets. The supply of gold rose steadily, slowly, but steadily, and to a large extent was correlated with productivity. So that prices generally were stable to declining. So you actually didn't have inflation, but price deflation, where the amount of stuff you could buy with an ounce of gold increased over time. Whereas today, with paper money, the amount of stuff you can buy generally decreases over time. That's what inflation means. So money used to be an objective value. It used to have a reality to it. It used to be private And it reflected values. It reflected what you produced, what you created, what you built, what you made, what people were willing to pay you in exchange for your production. But once money can just be printed, just be created out of thin air, it loses any anchor to reality. It loses any objective value. Its only value is that what the government says it is. And it's not clear that money is now linked to production. Money is now redistributed. Money is now handed out in bailouts. It is handed out to buy all kinds of assets. It is used by the government on a massive scale, on an unprecedented scale today, to redistribute wealth. And, not, and I'm here, I'm not talking about welfare. Not always to redistribute wealth from, let's say, rich to poor. But today... We're redistributing wealth from middle class to rich. We're redistributing wealth from savers to borrowers. We're redistributing wealth today from old to young, retirees to first-time homebuyers. We're redistributing wealth in all directions. Redistributing wealth all over the place. And it's not wealth, it's money. We're redistributing money everywhere. And money has become delinked from production. Interest rates have become delinked from the demand and supply for money. They're complete creations of central planners. Our financial markets are basically becoming socialist financial markets. Where the government, through the Federal Reserve, is basically setting prices, setting the allocation of capital, choosing winners and losers, Now, this all started, I remember the first time I heard this idea. It was in 1987. I mean, it started well before this, but it came to my awareness and maybe to the market's awareness for the first time 
in, in full force. In October of 1987, in what was called Black Monday, a day in which the stock market dropped 25%. And we won't get into the reason why it dropped 25%, but in one day, the stock market dropped in 25%. Now, on that day, Alan Greenspan happened to be the Federal Reserve Chairman. He was a new Federal Reserve Chairman. He had taken the position earlier that year, in 1987. And uh, Alan Greenspan was, I think, in Dallas. He was away from the Federal Reserve. He was away from Washington, D.C. And on that day, he basically got on the phone and let everybody know that the Fed was there to provide as much liquidity as markets needed, that they would not allow the stock market to crash any further, that they would, anybody who needed money, the Fed would lend them money, and that they would make sure that markets did not go any further down. And indeed, markets bounced around a little bit at those lows and quickly rebounded, and that 25% was regained within, I can't remember, I think within a year. It was known, came to be known as the Greenspan put. In other words, it came to be known that the Federal Reserve, at least under Greenspan, then under every Federal Reserve chairman since, would not allow financial markets to collapse. They would not allow bad outcomes in financial markets. That they would do what they could to supply liquidity to participants. Now, originally, this might have been done innocently. The idea was that the decline of 25% was some technical aspects of computerized trading. It's not clear that that's real, but let's assume that's true. And that people who wanted to buy and prop the market back up couldn't because there was not enough liquidity. So they the Fed would lend the money short term. Just, you know, none of them would default, none of them were going bankrupt, just they needed the money to be able to go and support the markets. And the money would be returned quickly and it would have no long term effect on the markets. And that was the original idea. And Greenspan used this put on several occasions following that. In 1991, in, in actually January of 1992, Alan Greenspan engineered the sharpest drop of interest rates, short-term interest rates in United States history. Basically to save the banking industry because he feared that the banking industry was going to be bankrupt. He created a sharp difference between long and short-term interest rates so that banks could borrow low interest rate and lend out at a high interest rate and make some money. Another example of a Greenspan put, bailing out the banks. He continued to increase the money supply aggressively throughout the 1990s to the point where at some point he called the stock market, uh, thought there was a, a irrational exuberance in the stock market and threatened to raise interest rates. But then when he threatened that and the markets went down, he immediately reversed the threat and we saw the dot-com bubble in, you know, grow to absurdities in 1999 and implode 
in 2000. You guys are probably too young to remember the complete implosion of the NASDAQ and tech stocks in 2000 and 2001. Then in 2002, after 9-11, as the U.S. economy, because of the dot-com bubble in 9-11, was teetering on the verge of a recession, Alan Greenspan engineered another massive reduction in interest rates. Indeed, kept interest rates so low for two and a half years that interest rates, real interest rates, inflation-adjusted interest rates, were negative, thus creating the famous, infamous housing bubble. Money flew into housing, creating a housing bubble, which you all know. Alan Greenspan retired a couple of years later. The housing bubble imploded in 2008, causing the great financial crisis, the Great Recession, blamed on capitalism, but should be blamed on Alan Greenspan and the Greenspan put. Now, here was the great financial crisis. Now, what does the Fed do? Well, it does the Greenspan put on steroids. Why? Only just provide a little bit of liquidity to hold up markets. Why not flood the market with money? And indeed, many economists claim that the Fed didn't do enough to flood the markets with money. But they flooded the markets with money. They bought everything in sight. Later rather than earlier. These economists are right that the Fed did what they did too late, if you will, to even help these markets. They bailed companies out. Instead of the normal responsibility of kind of lending to banks in distress, they suddenly were studying to everybody in distress. And the Federal Reserve suddenly became arbiter of who wins and who loses, not just in American banking, in European banking, among corporate America. And it's not clear that what they were doing was even legal. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to look at it. Nobody wants to examine it. They just accept it. But the Federal Reserve is lending to people that they shouldn't be lending money to. Or at least they never had a mandate to lend money to. And then, if you remember, after the financial crisis, once the financial crisis was over, they did a very poor job during the financial crisis, created massive uncertainty, massive fear, massive panic for no good reason. Bernanke was an awful Federal Reserve chief. After the financial crisis, as the economy is coming out of it, they engaged in QE2, QE3, which was massive programs to buy bonds. And when you buy bonds, you bring bonds in, you send cash out. So huge amounts of money flooding into the system. But all the bonds, the bonds were two types of bonds. Historically, the, government, the Fed has bought government bonds. Historically, short-term government bonds. What happened in the financial crisis that was unique and special and different was they suddenly started to buy long-term government bonds, less lowering long-term interest rates artificially. And at the same time, they started buying on a massive scale, mortgage-backed securities, some mortgages, thus lowering interest rates on mortgages. In other words, to hold with the market, to hold with markets determining interest rates, to hold with market participants evaluating risk and return, evaluating the future of the economy, setting prices. No, the Federal Reserve was now setting prices. Central planners were now setting prices based on models more sophisticated but as incompetent as the coronavirus models. 
And now the government is being, the Federal Reserve is being full-fledged into buying securities in security markets, manipulating those markets, increasing the money supply. It didn't cause inflation. Prices didn't go way up. So everybody assumes that they had no impact. But of course they had an impact. Keeping interest rates artificially low, flooding the market with money, money that went into the stock market to cause the stock market to go artificially high, money that went into projects that nobody needs, went into investments that wouldn't be profitable in normal conditions. What the Federal Reserve did for over 10 years, I mean, it's been doing it to some extent since it was founded, but what it has done in steroids over the last 10, 12 years, actually 12 years, well, and if you count the dot-com, the, uh, sorry, the housing bubble, maybe 8, 20 years, and if you count the dot-com bubble, maybe 30 years, what the government has been doing is manipulating markets, causing massive malinvestments, causing bubble after bubble after bubble that then bursts, choosing winners and losers, reducing premiums on risk, encouraging risk-taking, screwing savers by reducing interest rates, and then encouraging pension plans and insurance companies and other people who need a return on their bonds and can't get it because they've squeezed interest rates so low, encouraging them to take on massive risks, which when the market turns, they lose a lot of money on, like they probably have in the last six months. And basically messing up the most important aspect of a marketplace, the pricing mechanism, the signals that prices send, the signals that interest rates send, and whether people want to borrow or lend, and whether people are willing to take on more risk or less risk. Who knows what interest rates mean today? Well, I know what interest rates mean today. They mean... They reflect not the marketplace, not supply and demand, not what the market is willing to bear, but they reflect what the central planners want. They reflect the desires of central planners. They reflect the interests of central planners. And central planners, we know, are pathetic. They can't even set the price of bread right. Whoops. Did video just go? Oh, came back. They can't even set the price back. You saw bread lines in the Soviet Union. And there was no way that they could set the price of interest rates, set the price of bonds, set the price of other financial institutions. During this crisis, the government has, the Federal Reserve in other words, has put everything on steroids. Obviously, what they did during the financial crisis was too mild, too moderate. So now they're spending trillions of dollars on buying assets, and it's not just government bonds, long-term, short-term, medium-term. It's not just mortgage-backed securities. They're buying a ton of those. There's a reason why interest rates on mortgages right now are the lowest they've ever been, not because there's no risk in mortgages, not because mortgages for, for somebody issuing them are great investment, no. But because I can sell, 
I issue a mortgage, the bank can issue a mortgage, and sell it to the Fed. The Fed is driving those interest rates lower and lower and lower, decoupling completely the interest rate on their mortgage from any risk, for any long-term risk. So it wouldn't surprise me they're holding up real estate prices in some places, encouraging people to take on debt in order to buy homes. But it's not just mortgage-backed securities. Now the Federal Reserve is buying corporate bonds, bonds issued by corporations. And since this crisis has began, something like $1.3 trillion of new debt has been created by corporations. Corporations are going on a massive borrowing scheme. Why? You'd think that during a crisis like this, interest rates would, in, uh, during a crisis like this, interest rates would go up because uncertainty is going up, because risk has gone up, because we don't know what the future holds. We're in an economic recession, depression that we've never experienced before because of the virus and the lockdowns. But no, interest rates have come down. It's become easier and easier and easier for corporations to borrow money. Why? Because the Fed is buying it. The Fed has purchased billions of dollars in corporate debt. And now, recently, they've announced that they're not just, now they've been doing this using what they call exchange-traded funds. These are indexes, so they, they don't buy any particular bond. They just buy an index of bonds. Now they've announced that they're starting to buy specific bonds. And they're not going to require any kind of certification of those bonds. They're not going to require that the companies say that, for example, they can't raise debt anywhere else. To hell with that. The Fed will just buy their debt no matter what. They're not going to say that the solvent, not bankrupt. To hell with that. The Fed's going to buy their debt anyway. So the Fed is gobbling up, gobbling up. Debt, bonds, risky bonds, they don't care. Companies that should have failed during the financial crisis, during this crisis, and some companies should fail, are not going to fail because they can borrow so cheaply. Not only are they buying corporate bonds, but they're buying high-yield bonds. High-yield bonds used to be called junk bonds. These are bonds of companies. Whose future is suspect? doesn't matter. We're going to buy their bonds too and lower their interest rates too so that risky assets are now really cheap. The government is, ba- the Federal Reserve is basically taking over the credit markets. More than that, it is establishing a program that is going to lend directly to small businesses, medium-sized businesses, not small, medium-sized businesses. billion of direct lending. I mean, not direct. It's going to go through the banks. But the loans are going to sit at the Fed. The Fed basically is going to fund mid-sized businesses around the United States. In other words, and uh, we know already that small businesses got the PPP loans directly from the Treasury. In other words, government now is by far the largest lender in the marketplace. It has just lent $660 billion to small businesses. It's about to lend $600 billion to medium-sized businesses. And it is buying billions and billions of dollars of securities, of bonds, of large businesses. Does anybody think we have any semblance of capitalism left? 
our financial markets, which used to be the freest, most flexible, most dynamic financial markets in the world, are now shells of themselves. They are now completely controlled by the Federal Reserve, by Central Bank. They are now completely under the thumb of the Treasury Department. Freedom in the United States and the financial sector is out. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The window, it is gone. It is history. And we are granting the Federal Reserve more and more and more and more power. Indeed. There is rampant speculation on Wall Street. That if the stock market declined significantly in the near future, the Federal Reserve would actually start buying stocks, which central banks, other places in the world, have already started doing. In other words, the central bank would now become an owner of the means of production. Not just a lender to the means of production, but an owner of the means of production. You're waiting for Democrats to bring you socialism? We already have socialism. And Donald Trump would like the Federal Reserve to do more, not less, to lower interest rates so much that they become negative. Like Europe, and Europe is doing so well, we should emulate them. So we have today a system through the Federal Reserve which is basically turning this country into a socialist, fascist country. And there's no real difference between socialism and fascism. It's government control of the economy. And the Federal Reserve is facilitating it on a scale we have never seen in American history. It is destroying. Destroying the meaning of the dollar. Destroying the meaning of our money. And in some sense, more importantly than that, it is destroying the meaning of debt. When everybody owes the government, the government gets to call the shots. The government becomes the owner. The government becomes the central planner of the entire economy. Never in American history have we seen the nationalization of so much of American assets, so much of American treasure as we're seeing right now through the Federal Reserve and through the Treasury Department. Don't don't let, you know, divert it onto that because what they're doing is they're bailing out companies, they, they have lending facilities, and they're helping the Fed do what they're doing. So, Government and the Fed, Fed is just one branch of government, but the executive branch and the Fed are working hand-in-hand basically to control the U.S. economy. Never thought, and and under the radar. It's not like they're going out there and buying whole chunks and taking equity stakes in whole chunks of the economy explicitly. This is all subvertly, under the table, without anybody noticing, without anybody seemingly caring. Indeed, if anything, financial markets are cheering this on. One of the reasons... The stock market is going up and up and up in spite of the disaster that is the U.S. economy right now. It's because, what? It's because they've got up the Greenspan put. If something goes bad in the market, the feds will just step in and buy. What can they lose? 
as long as the Fed is there to print money as much as they want, why not keep pricing stocks up? It is insanity. It is short-term. It is absurd. It is the delinking of our financial markets from any reality. But that is what central planning does. That's what statism does. That's what socialism does. And man, I never thought it would happen this fast in America. So not only are we falling apart culturally, not only is the government shutting us down through lockdowns, but on the side, where we're not watching, the Federal Reserve is basically taking over whole markets and destroying the economy of this country. I don't care who gets elected in November. The economy of the United States is going to struggle for a long time. The distortions, the perversions created by the Feds and the Treasury over the last few months are going to live with us for decade, for at least a decade. We are power in decline, not because China is rising, not because of competition, but because we've embraced socialism, we've embraced statism, we've embraced central planning. And we've done so, again, just like in 2008, under a Republican president. Just want to point that out. Just like George Bush wanted to save capitalism by obliterating it. Well, I don't think Trump cares about capitalism, but Trump is basically giving the Fed, giving the Treasury Department, carte blanche, spend as much money as you want in order to make the American people think, feel, feel is better, thinking is not acceptable, feel as if the economy is rebounding so that he can get reelected. Well, that, that's a little cynical. Not only so he can get reelected, because, but just because that's how he functions. Short-term, unprincipled thinking. And to do that, flood the market with money, get the Fed buying everything, drive up asset prices, everybody feels like they're richer. But it's fake. It's not real. It's insanity. Insanity. (sighs) All right. And of course, the long term is slow economic growth, no economic growth, high unemployment, or even low unemployment, but no economic growth, no wealth addition, no mobility, no social mobility, very little entrepreneurship, very new, little innovation. That is our future, sadly. That is our future. Sad and depressing. Sad and depressing. And of course, there is an alternative. The alternative is to return to an improved free banking system. To a gold standard that is fixed, not manipulatable by government. And you would have to go with stages, dissolving the Fed, shifting monetary powers to banks, getting rid of all the regulations and controls that the Fed has. But that is science fiction today. Nobody's even talking about that. Another alternative 
would be to prohibit the Federal Reserve from buying all these assets. Prohibit the Federal Reserve from acting a central planning in chief. Limiting the scope of what they can do, maybe to, gov to government bonds. And then giving them a rule, like a computer, where they respond in foreseeable ways. And there are all kinds of rules proposed out there. Now, that's not ideal. Still central planning, still government manipulation, still going to cause problems. But far better than giving a bunch of economists complete discretion over our lives, complete discretion as central planners, do whatever the hell they feel like doing in times of crisis. It's just an unmitigated disaster and cannot be easily reversed. Cannot be easily reversed. We are so far away from free banking. We are so far away from private banking. We're so far away from getting rid of the Federal Reserve. It's almost not worth mentioning. And yet, it's the only ultimate alternative to what we have today. Somebody says Powell wants to get into the junk bond market. He already is in the junk bond market. He's buying, he's buying indexes. He's buying exchange-traded indexes, index funds of high-yield bonds, which are junk bonds. Capitalism in America is dead. I'm announcing it here now. There is nothing left. I mean, there's a little bit left. But it's slowly dying. It's slowly dying. And it's going to be so difficult to recover from this. It's going to be so difficult to get back on track. And nobody is talking about it. And you notice, I mean, Peter Schiff and some other libertarians are talking about it, but in the mainstream, anywhere in the mainstream, anywhere across the entire, is anybody talking about the $3 trillion bailouts that, this, that Trump has signed off of? They talked about the $6 trillion the Fed has created. They talked about the manipulation of prices that the Fed is engaged in, the, the, the central planning that is engaged. Nobody, 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 nobody. Because used to be conservatives would at least give it lip service. But I read conservative sites. None of those conservative sites are mentioning it. Not a single one of them. Yeah, yeah they're, they're talking about Corona, which they should be. They're talking about the demonstrations and riots, which they should be. But we're destroying our way of life right now. We're destroying the future of this country. We're destroying the future of our children and our grandchildren. And nobody, nobody, nobody seems to care. Everybody's just going about their business, pretending that everybody, everything is just hunky-dory. If just we, we got rid of the left, or if just we got rid of this, or if just we won that election, or we win this election, everything is fine. Nobody realizing at the same time there is a massive destruction of the economic system that is America. Yeah, pure capitalism... Uh, Capitalism as it should be has never existed in America, but America has elements of capitalism and had for a long time. Since its birth, it's had elements of capitalism, and, and there were periods where capitalism dominated the market, even though it wasn't complete. And financial markets in the United States still functioned on the profit motive and provided price signals that were, to some extent, 
still free and capitalist. But that mixture that Ayn Rand talks about of capitalism and socialism living together in a mixed economy, that mixture is shifting dramatically in the direction of socialism. And the parts of the economy that are free, they could still call capitalist, are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Under a Republican president. Did I mention that? I think I did. All right. Somebody says, how do you convince people that there's no such thing as a free lunch? (laughs) It's very, very hard. When the government can just bring into existence $3 trillion, hand out stimulus checks to individual Americans and to every small business in the country, It's very hard then to convince people there's no such thing as a free lunch because it sure looks like a free lunch. The problem is that that lunch is being paid for in ways that are hard to see. It's being paid for by the fact that you, the recipient of this money, will earn less money in the future. You'll have fewer opportunities in the future. You'll have less wealth in your future. Your children will pay massive amounts of taxes in order to pay for what you're getting today. So the so-called free lunch today, you will pay for every single day of your life for the rest of your working life and for the rest of your saving life. So in other words, for the rest of your life. And it's not just you, but your children and your grandchildren will be paying for that free lunch forever. That's what the stimulus package is. It's a so-called free lunch to be paid for in the future by you with lower economic growth, with fewer opportunities, lousy jobs, lousy income, and no ability to save. And for your children, higher taxes, fewer opportunities, lower standard of living. That's how you pay for it. How do you explain that to people? I wish I knew. It's so hard. It's so, so hard. And everybody is against us. Everybody, left, right, center, in the media, is telling them a different story. Telling them there's there are plenty of free lunches. Now I recommend Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. That is the best book on this, but I'm telling you, it's very, very hard to convince anybody of anything like this today because it looks like magic. And it's not. Somebody asked, Tesla may be overvalued. Do you think they have a viable business plan without subsidies? No. You know, maybe they do now. But all their development costs, all of their early launch costs were subsidized by government. Massive subsidies from the state of California, hundreds of millions of dollars, and tax credits and all kinds of things. So they certainly weren't viable initially. I don't know today. Now that they've got a product, now that it's cheap enough, Maybe they're viable even without all the taxpayer help. But they couldn't have got to this place. They could never have got to this place without massive subsidies from government. And I don't know if Tesla's overvalued or not. I I don't do specific stocks, and I told you I would not give you investment advice. How would you phase out the Federal Reserve? Well, there's a number of ways to do it. You'd have to first go on a gold standard. So step number one would be... um, 
to, to let the world know you're going in a gold standard, let's say in two years, January 1st, 2022, we're going in a gold standard. And we're going to set the price of gold or whatever the market price of gold is on that day or, or on a particular day. And at that day, um, all dollars would be redeemable into gold. You'd have to set the exchange so people would know. And that's how the price would be set based on how many dollars were available and making sure that people could redeem it. Then you would... So, so now all the dollars are backed by gold. Then you would tell the banks, private banks, all the money that you have, if you come to the Federal Reserve with that money, we will give you gold. So you will now hold the gold in exchange for this money. And then you would have to find a way to, tell the, to, to encourage the banks to create their own currency that is backed now by the gold that's sitting in the vaults. Right? So in a sense, the Fed would get all the dollar bills as we have them today from the banks. The, the, the Fed would transfer the gold into the bank's vaults. The banks would then start giving their newly created dollars to their customers based on the amount of gold they had in the vault. Now, you would have to restructure the entire regulatory system. You would have to get rid of deposit insurance and all the regulations that we have on banks today. And you will have, you'd have to do this wisely and slowly and systematically, and you'd have to figure out which regulations would go first. But, but the, the main process would be this redistribution of gold in the economy. Ultimately, I think banks could be created that didn't have gold reserves. They could have other reserves. They could have Bitcoin for all I care. But the transition would have to be based on a particular standard, and I think that standard would have to be gold. And yes, you'd have to get rid of taxes associated with gold and silver. It has to be stopped being viewed as an asset and now viewed as money. You don't tax money. Um, but of course, ultimately, there is no capital gains on gold because gold will be, have one value. It will be fixed. It won't be floating. So there's a lot of little details you have to work out in the transition. But basically, first the Fed goes on a gold standard. Then the Fed... Uh, mandates banks go re replace their currency all the currency flows back into the fed banks get in exchange gold that gold now gets it turns into paper money through the banks printing money themselves and that you that that would be the kind of transition you would go through right um, you'd have to work it out in great detail but what's the point? Nobody's listening. Nobody cares. Nobody's out there. But, but you'd have to work it out, and, and it's workable. It's not, this is not crazy. This is definitely something that can be done if there was a will and ability to do it. Let's see. Uh, didn't Iron Man support Greenspan taking the job at the Fed? No, she was dead by then. Um, she supported him taking the job of chief economic advisor to Ford because she thought that was a... Uh, a, a real job, where he could have an influence on government to move it towards more free markets. And he did to some extent. There was some movement during the Ford administration, even more 
following it in the, in the Carter administration towards deregulation, real deregulation, not the kind that Trump thinks he's doing, but real deregulation. So, yes, um, she did not, would not, I don't think, have approved of uh, Alan Greenspan taking the Fed job. She said you shouldn't take a government job that wouldn't exist in a free market. The Fed job is a job that clearly wouldn't exist in a free market. Um, yes, I think it was a huge mistake for Greenspan to take that job. It basically set us up for every time we argue against the Fed or something. Yes, but an objectivist ran the Fed and see what a disaster he made of it. And then he, of course, turned his back on capitalism in testimony in front of the Senate and the House. And he was just an awful Federal Reserve chief. He made huge mistakes. He was considered um, the maestro. He was considered the brilliant central planner. He bought into the, his own story. He, he committed massive hubris. And then when he'd go to testify in front of the Senate and House, he would spout the most nonsensical, unintelligible, Keynesian nonsense. So he didn't even use the opportunity when he had a seat at the table to talk about capitalism. So he blew it on a scale that is unimaginable. Unimaginable. But of course he had to blow it because it's a job he shouldn't have done. Why don't people see how problematic the Federal Reserve is? Because they don't seem to care. People like the idea of a central planner. People like the idea of bailouts. People like the idea of a soft landing and a Greenspan puts and not letting markets freeze up and providing liquidity and all of that. And then they have all these economists to provide all the analytical support for this and all the Keynesian and neo-Keynesians and neo-monetarists and all these people. And then the MMTs, the modern monetary theorists. People love this. It makes them feel safe. And the fact that the Federal Reserve has created all these disasters, too complicated. It would actually require people to think, and that's the one thing people seem to really resist doing these days. What are your thoughts on bitcoins in Bitcoin in relation to Federal Reserve? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what, you know, Bitcoin is, to me, meaningless. It's, it's a cryptocurrency. You can have as many cryptocurrencies as you want. Why, why just bitcoins? Bitcoins can be divided into several other coins. You can have inflation in cryptocurrencies. I just don't think it's real money. I think it's, it's pretend, it's a game, it's something that, I mean, there's something there. Blockchain, I think, has value and, and is an interesting technology, and a lot of things will use blockchain ultimately. And there's a certain value to cryptocurrencies in terms of moving money fast, efficiently, cheap, uh, and, 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 and anonymously. But it's not money, it's a tool. It's a tool that facilitates the movement of money. And... Anyway, I, I don't think it's a replacement of the Federal Reserve. I don't think it can replace the Federal Reserve. And why Bitcoin? Why not the 500 other cryptocurrencies that are out there? I mean, from what I hear, the Federal Reserve is planning to issue its own cryptocurrency. Um, the Constitution says government can mint coins. Do you think the Supreme Court used that to justify printing paper money? Yes. And the Constitution, unfortunately, shouldn't have said the government can mint coins. The government shouldn't mint anything. The government shouldn't create money in any form. The money, the, 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 
the government, the, the Constitution should say that the government has no involvement in the economy, including in monetary issues. If I wrote, rewrote the Constitution, it would definitely, definitely include that. Somebody says Greenspan is an enigma. He's not an enigma. He got caught up in the power. He always liked the power. He liked to schmooze with important people. He liked to get invited to the nice parties. If you read his autobiography, which I did, you can tell immediately that what really turned him on was the schmoozing and the parties and the, and the famous people and get, having lunch with the president and breakfast with the treasury secretary. He loved that stuff. He loved being and feeling important. And what he liked about Ayn Rand was that she was smarter than him. And he says that. And that he actually was in awe of her. But as soon as he left her presence, he was back to being a second-handed, you know, nothing. It was only in her presence that he felt an attachment to her ideas. And you read his autobiography and you discover the real personality, the real psychological drivers of Alan Greenspan. Trump berates the Fed to lower the interest rates, arguing the U.S. is less competitive based on comparisons with other countries. Assuming that's wrong, why? Oh, it's horribly wrong. I mean, higher interest rates in the United States means people want to hold dollars, which means the dollar is stronger, which means we can buy other people's stuff cheaper, which means a higher standard of living for us. Again, importing goods importing goods because you have a strong currency, is a massive advantage, not a disadvantage. Trump has everything about trade and currency wrong and has had from the beginning. So low interest rates are fine. When, are low, when should interest rates be low? When there's a lot of saving, a lot of people want to save money, you know, so they're, they're putting it away. But nobody wants to borrow it. Nobody wants to borrow the money. So interest rates go down, which is a penalty on saving, and it makes it more attractive for people to borrow. So two things happen when interest rates go down. People start borrowing more, and people start saving less. Until it reaches an equilibrium, interest rates start going up because people are saving less and borrowing more. And it goes up until it reaches an equilibrium where people save as much as they want to save, People borrow as much as they want to borrow. And that is how a marketplace determines interest rates. Fed should not determine interest rates. It doesn't know what the right interest rate is. So interest rate is the price of money at a particular, at a particular, particular point in time, the price at which people are willing to borrow money. And it's a consequence of the supply of money and the demand for money a supply of debt, and a demand for debt. That's the beauty of the market. Markets are truly beautiful. And then the interest rates will be determined by risk. The higher the risk, the higher the interest rate. The more you want to be compensated for taking on the risk, the lower the risk, the lower the interest rates. And then, of course, inflation. The more you fear inflation, the higher the interest rate. The less you fear inflation, the lower interest rate. But interest rates should never, ever, ever, ever be negative. It doesn't make any sense for you to pay me to take your money, which is what negative interest rates literally mean. That's not a metaphor. That's literally what happens in an interest rate. Imagine mortgages were negative. The bank would be paying you to take a mortgage. 
You wouldn't pay them anything. They would pay you for having taken the million dollars off their hands. I mean, that is simply economic madness, insanity. But that's what Trump wants. But, you know, his understanding of economics is that of a five-year-old. Could a small country abolish the central bank and create a successful financial system? Or is the influence of the dollar worldwide so big that we need U.S. to lead the way? I think it would be very difficult for a small country to do it. They could do it. They could basically eliminate the local currency. And they could say to their banks, you can accept whatever currency you want. You can even create your own. And then some, kind, some people would, some banks would say, okay, we're going to use dollars. Others would use euros. And some would use gold. And then it would see. So, yes, a small country can do it. Um, but it would and should do it. A, a lot of s- small countries, for example, have eliminated their central banks and just used dollars. Ecuador is one. Panama, I think, is another. Right? They've dollarized their economy. If you think about it, European countries don't have a central bank, which is great. They rely on one central bank, which is, they rely on the euro. What would be good is if they allowed the banks to use dollars, euros, you know, whatever currency the banks and the population wanted to use. Not have an explicit currency for the state. That would be even better. And maybe even allow banks to issue their own currency. And then who knows what would happen. So most, most, uh, most countries in Europe don't have a central bank, not in the, in the sense of putting their own money because they use the euro. And, and South American countries, some South American countries use the dollar in the same sense. I uh, just want to say thank you. Thank you for the, for, the, for, for the generosity. This is my favorite topic, and I'm so grateful that you are pointing out the un-American distortion of free markets being committed for political gain by the U.S. government and extension of the f- treasury known as the Fed. Oh, absolutely. I thought there was a question there, but I, uh, absolutely. My, uh, uh, you know, this is what I'm here for. This is what you guys pay me for. Um, let's see what else. Uh, based on this video, I'm considering moving permanently to another country. What are your thoughts on Malaysia, Taiwan, Poland, Czech Republic? Thank you for all that you do. Malaysia, uh, too Muslim from, from my taste and... and uh, yeah, too unstable because of Islam, and just very corrupt. I would be very wary of Malaysia. I think Taiwan is terrific. Um, Chinese culture, very productive, very creative, very entrepreneurial, uh, rising standard of living, free markets, probably the best country in the world to deal with the coronavirus. Poland, way too nationalistic, uh, way too nationalistic and heading in the wrong direction, in my view, in terms of freedom, freedom of speech and, and economic freedom, heading in the wrong direction more towards kind of a, a, a soft fascism than uh, towards anything else. Czech Republic, okay, um, immersed in, in the European Union, so you get the problems that the European Union has, uh, you know, and, and was more kind of free market, I'd say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago than it is today. Taiwan, of course, is under threat of assault by China, so that's a downside. But if those countries, suddenly Taiwan seemed the best to me, I wouldn't consider the others. Particularly not Poland, Malaysia. Czech Republic, maybe. It's a pretty fun place. Prague is a pretty beautiful place, too. Um, Iceland, way too cold. It's in the name. You can't live in Iceland. Only 250,000 people live in Iceland. 
it's not a it's not a livable place, right? It's not a livable place. I mean, a bunch of places in South America. The main problem in South America is crime. Latin America, you know, the crime rates are, are high, uh, and and it's a quality of life issue. You have to you have to decide about the quality of life. Um, somebody says Richard Wolff always says cure for capitalism is socially owned companies. What are these? They're companies owned by workers. Uh, are they actually good? No, they're terrible. They can't compete. I mean, the fact is that if they were good, then why not start one now? Why wait until some socialist utopia? Start one now and, and beat the competition. The fact is they're not productive. They're not, uh, you know, if you want to understand how they work, um, read Atlas Shrugged. There's a great example, the 21st century motor company. And what happens to it? Socialism destroys on whatever scale it is tried. And when you try social-owned companies, they're self-destructive. There's only one example of a successful socially-owned company in Spain. And every socialist I ever debate brings that one out. There's one in Spain. There's one in Spain. It turns out that it's not as socially-owned as people think. They have employees that don't own part of the business. They have subsidiaries that are pretty privately-owned, kind of capitalist subsidiaries. But yeah, it, it can work on small scale sometimes in some places on occasion. It's not a solution and there is no problem. There is no cure for capitalism because capitalism is the cure for whatever ails us. But no, they are complete disasters. They don't work. And they can't work theoretically. What, what the whole idea is that the division of labor is meaningless, that there's no expertise, that managers contribute nothing, that CEOs, anybody could do their job. It is complete ignorance of what business is and how business runs and how markets work. Complete ignorance. Any good books you recommend on becoming more financially literate on the topic you discussed tonight? Uh, I said when I go to California, I'm going to get at my library and give you all some recommendations when it comes to finance, and I will. I'll be in California in July, so in July I will provide you with reading lists in terms of finance and what to read, uh, both on markets, stock markets, Federal Reserve, and other things. My book, my library is over there. Uh, what do I think of marijuana stocks? Um, I think they're probably overvalued because they were hyped and everybody went into it. There was a period, I don't know, a couple of years ago where everybody was investing in marijuana. It was the, you know, when everybody's investing in something, it's probably going to be overvalued. It's probably going to be a bubble. And yeah, if you're very early, you make money and everybody else loses. So I stay away from marijuana stocks. I would stay away from marijuana stocks. I said I wouldn't give investment advice and there I go giving you advice. Um, have you heard of Gracie Survival Tax Tactics? It's a nonprofit martial arts course for police officers. Is this an example of capitalism on anarchy? Oh no, it's it's a it's an example of capitalism. It's an example of somebody who can provide a service to the government. It doesn't mean the government has to develop a martial arts program. If there are good martial arts programs out there that can train police, then they should, and I think that's great. So it's, it's a good example of a private entity providing services uh, to a government program. It's just the same as I don't believe the weapons need to be built by the government for the military. Those were built in a private sector. It's a little tricky how that is structured, but let's put that aside for a minute. But it would be the private sector building weapon systems and the government buying them. It would be the private sector creating courses and training for police and the government buying those courses and training for the police. 
But, I, but yes, I have heard of the Gracie survivor tactics. I wish all police forces used something like that and made it required and ongoing. You don't do it once and forget about it. Ongoing training, once a year, tests, flunk people, kick them out of the police force because they're not in good shape enough, kick them out of the police force because they can't pacify somebody without using their gun. From an objectivist point of view, is there a case where insider trading is unethical? Yes, absolutely. Um, you as a, as a CEO have a fiduciary duty to your shareholders not to abuse your position. So, for example, shorting your stock. Shorting is betting that the stock will go down. Should be, is immoral and should be against the, the you should have an employment contract that excludes that, that makes that, it shouldn't be illegal, but it should be, it's a violation of fiduciary duty. The shareholders should be able to sue you over that. Right? So, particularly on the downside, you should not be able to take advantage of, of negative information. If you have negative information, you should disclose it. You shouldn't be trading on it. And, and if you can trade on negative information, that creates an incentive where you can make money by tanking the stock. So there were a lot of things about inside information that would be that, that are issues of, of ethics. And then there were a lot of things that are about insider trading that would be um, contractual. It would be in your contract as a CEO, as an employee of a company, what you can and cannot do with your stock. And then on top of that, I think exchanges would regulate insider trading. Different exchanges might have different rules for insider trading. And companies listed on one exchange have one set of rules, and another exchange have a different set of rules. And we'll see which rules make more sense based on market participants. Again, markets are beautiful things. Markets will deal with insider trading if insider trading is a problem through contractual mechanisms. You don't need government to do it. There's no fraud involved. And unless a CEO tanks the stock on purpose after he shorted it. But then... That's clearly criminal because it's clearly a violation of their fiduciary duty. You don't need insider trading laws to protect us against fraud. Does altruism block the creative destruction that allows capitalism to function? Yeah, it does. Because you want to protect everybody. You don't want destruction. You don't want people to lose their jobs. Again, watch other people's money. The movie Other People's Money, I keep recommending it, is a great example of the attempt to stop creative destruction. And the attempt to stop it is all based on altruism. But the workers and the suppliers and tradition and history and the poor and the, and the weak. That's Gregory Peck's character. He is the altruist trying to stop progress, trying to stop creative destruction. Given the current situation, what is the best country to live in? I don't know. I don't know. It depends on what you value. Really depends on what you value. I live in Puerto Rico. It's America, but not exactly. Now, I don't know that Puerto Rico is appropriate for everybody. It depends on your tax situation. It depends how much money you make. It depends on whether you can live nicely in Puerto Rico. I wouldn't want to live lower middle class in Puerto Rico. That would be no fun at all. You want to live well. in If you're going to be in Puerto Rico, you have to live well because it's a relatively poor place. So... You know, but, but, but there's an argument that of Singapore, but Singapore doesn't have free speech. I couldn't live in Singapore. Hong Kong once, but no more. 
New Zealand is beautiful and calm and, and just magnificent and lots to do and friendly people and relatively free markets, but it's in the middle of nowhere. Can't get anywhere. And it's very laid back. You have to want that. Australia is not bad. You know, I don't know. Estonia has a relatively free market. Look at the economic freedom. Switzerland is another great place to live. Switzerland in Europe. Switzerland is great. Ireland is another one. Ireland, standard of living in Ireland is very high. Abortion is now legal. Gay marriage is legal. So they've moved on social issues away from their Catholicism. So it's not as religious as a country as it used to be. It's become very, very secular. And so Ireland might be a good place to live. So, so it depends on your particular values. Maybe Costa Rica, if, if you want to retire, it, it depends on your values. I mean, it's in the middle of the Pacific. It's in the middle of nowhere, right? It's like hours, even to Australia. <laughs> and it's small. But I love New Zealand. New Zealand is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Tokyo, to live in Japan, is a very different culture. Very different culture. And I, you know, you'd have to be okay with it. Florida's nice. The least regulated state in the country. One of the lowest tax, I mean, in terms of income tax, no state income tax. In the United States, Florida is probably the freest country, state. Is there anyone watching what the Fed spent the $4 trillion on this year, $400 billion of cronyism, would only be 1%. Will anyone find it? No. No. Nobody really watches what the Fed does. I mean, there was this push to audit the Fed as if that would matter because corrupt politicians would audit the corrupt Fed. But no, nobody, nobody watches it. Really, really bad stuff can happen when you're talking about $4 trillion. It's an unbelievably corrupt institution with a potential to do real massive harm, and it's doing that real massive harm. All right. Thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the topic today, a bit more economics than what I usually do. Some of you, I'm sure, love it. Some of you probably don't. Um, I don't think I'll have a show tomorrow, but you can count on Saturday and Sunday. Probably probably get, get a show uh, Saturday and Sunday. So I'll see you all on Saturday. Have a great rest of your week. Have a fantastic weekend. See you then. Oh, don't forget. Don't forget. Don't forget. Subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe. Tell your neighbors to subscribe. Tell everybody you know on social media to subscribe. And, of course, like the show, share the show. Thank you for, this, for all the support. Those of you who have not yet supported the show, you can do so on Subscribe Store or Patreon or your onbookshow.com slash support or on Locals, locals.com. I um, hope to see you all uh, on Saturday. Talk to you soon. Bye, everybody.